What is uh, Christmas all about? Christmas time, mistletoe and wine, children singing Christian rhyme, logs on the fire, gifts on the tree, a time to rejoice in the good that we see. Or carols burning low, lots of mistletoe, lots of ice and snow. Everywhere we go, choir singing, right outside my door, all these things and more. That's what Christmas means to me. But what if we got rid of some of those things? What if we got rid of the carols? What if we got rid of the Christian rhyme? The songs that make your heart sing, that's our thing for our carol services this year. What if we got rid of Christ out of Christmas? Would it really matter? Well, we'd start Christmas trees, Christmas presents, Santa, candles, malt wine, yule logs, grottoes, tinsel, fairy lights, baubles, Christmas cake, Christmas pudding, Christmas crackers, Christmas lunch, Christmas cards, Christmas parties, elves, reindeer, mistletoe, Christmas specials, Paul the midwife. Home Alone, Home Alone 2, Home Alone 3. Is there a Home Alone 4? Die Hard, so there's some debate over that one. Would we even miss him if he wasn't there? Does it really matter anymore that Jesus came at Christmas time? Can't we just get on and enjoy Christmas without him? Well, I want to argue for a few minutes this evening that if we miss out Christ, we miss the whole point of Christmas. And in fact, we'd lose everything that we like about Christmas. Before us, we've got a portion of the Gospel of Matthew. That's an early account of Jesus' life. Matthew, who wrote this, certainly thought this event was important. He thought that it was life-changing, epoch-changing. He was writing to an audience of first-century Jews to tell them about the importance of Jesus coming into the world. Now, because it's written to an audience that's not us, it's sometimes a little bit to dis- decipher what he's getting at. But we'll see, he has a lot to say to us now. And we've got three headings tonight, and all three headings are lyrics from Disney songs. I've never tried this before, but they're all lyrics from Disney songs. And if you can tell me afterwards, be the first one to tell me what those uh, songs are, or if not that, what the films are, I've got a box of chocolates for the winner, okay? So if you uh, listen out for the, the Disney uh, you know, I'll try not to burn them or melt them by the candles. There we go. The first heading this evening, the first thing we find out, is Little Town. It's a quiet village. Let me have a read to you again of verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. They go on a visit, don't they, to visit a boy. Well, we've got two boys, they're both here this evening, so I won't embarrass them too much. But one of them was born in Yorkshire, and one of them was born in Lancashire. Okay? Now, does it really matter, though, where you're born? Will one of them grow up with all the qualities of a Yorkshireman? Frugal, loyal, strong and true. And the other one grow up with all the qualities of a Lancastrian. Whatever they are. (laughs) Anyway, it doesn't really matter because both of them can now play the Yorkshire County cricket team, so it's not that important. But where Jesus was born was really important. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem is really famous, isn't it? But actually, it wasn't a huge place. It's reckoned that at the time that Jesus was born, between 300 and 1,000 people lived in Bethlehem. So that's about the size of Western, if you head towards Ilkley. Not the western estates where my family live, western. 
That means Bethlehem was less than half the size of the Cambridge estate in Otley. It was tiny. That's why we sort of talk about it sometimes as a little town, or sometimes we speak of it as a village. Calling it a city makes it sound very grand, doesn't it? But actually it's very, very small. It's small, but not insignificant. It was the birthplace of the country's greatest king, King David of David and Goliath fame. It was a historic place. It carried immense significance in Israel's history. Imagine, for example, if a British king was born in Waterloo. I'd be saying, oh yes, they born in such a place, oh he's going to be a victorious king. Or imagine a British queen born in Kensington Palace, where Queen Victoria was born. You know the headlines, don't you? It's going to be, New Victoria Reigns. So being born in Bethlehem carried real significance. It was somewhere really important, but historically to be born in Bethlehem was really bad, because it was really small. Only a handful of families lived there. And that's probably why there weren't many places to stay, or some sort of travel lodges, all those sorts of things. It's a tiny little place. So to be born in Bethlehem was to be born somewhere rare, but special. And it's showing us, and Matthew's showing us, that this is no mere baby. History is repeating itself, if you like. That great king David that was born in Bethlehem, well here is this great king now being born in that same place. But there's a problem when Jesus was born, with him being king, and that was that there was already a king on the throne. And so our second point, the main event, could be spelled another way, the main event, like no king was before. Let me read to you uh, verses uh, 1 to 4 again. And they were saying, Where is he who has been born, king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And he assembled the wise men, sorry, they assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people. And he inquired of them whether Christ was to be born. Herod was king at the time. Now Herod is known to us from history. You can read about him in history books. He was called Herod the Great. But actually he was anything but. He was a vicious megalomaniac. He ruled under Roman authority, but he was given a lot of power over the area that he ruled. He's known in history as a bit of a power-crazed loon. Well, the wise men have come from the east to see the king, but it's not Herod. Could you imagine the scene when they get there and see King Herod? This guy is really big on being in power. We've come to see the king. And Herod must be thinking, oh great, you've come all the way to see me. And we've seen his star in the sky. He's thinking, oh, this must be brilliant, this is great. I've got a star in the sky. And then they go, where is he? Could you imagine the insult if you were King Herod? You know, here I am, I'm Herod the Great, I'm the Great King. And effectively all they've come to do is ask directions. That's all they're doing from him. Can you imagine the insult? It was a dangerous move because he was known as a particularly violent king. He had his wife and several other members of his family executed. He was ruthless. He's going to go on to murder toddlers in Bethlehem, isn't he? That's what happens next. It's horrific, but it certainly fits with what we know about him from history. But it shows us two things about the wise men. One is that they don't really go for worshipping kings in general. They meet this great king, and they don't bow down and worship him, do they? They know the difference between just a king and someone special. They actually just ask him for directions. They're not star spotters, 
in the sense of human beings. They're not coming to see celebrities. They know that there's something very special about this new king. But they were star spotters in the other sense. That's the thing we do know. And don't miss the significance here. Whatever the star of Bethlehem was, whether it was a comet or a conjunction or something supernatural, the birth of Jesus was announced on a cosmological scale. Don't worry about the candles, we can clear up that afterwards. But it's a, a cosmological scale. When my children were born, we loved it, but we didn't even announce it in the Wharfdale Observer. But this child, when he was born, was put in the stars of the sky. And whatever the star was, the wise men got the message. After all, this was their sort of thing. The word there for wise men is magi, literally. They were part of an aristocratic group. That's where we get our word magic from. They were into the stars and astronomy and astrology. They understood the stars in a particular way, like it was a language. And God here used their language to tell them about this great king and that he was here. But what does it mean for Jesus to be king when there was already a king on the throne? Even in Jesus' day, it was confusing, wasn't it? There was already somebody sat on the throne with a crown. And Jesus never sat on the throne. And the only crown that he wore was a crown of thorns on the cross. But Jesus was king on a different scale. Not just of one nation or of one people, but of everyone. That's what this promised king born in Bethlehem would be. King forever. King for everyone. That's what was prophesied about him. So Jesus' claims are bigger than King Herod's, bigger than any king or queen in history. He claims not just to be king, but to be our king, to be your king, to be everyone's king. And this gets to the heart of what Jesus is all about. But it's also when it starts getting personal, isn't it? We like to think of ourselves as being in charge of our own lives, as sort of being our own king. We say, don't we, that an Englishman's home is his castle. And you sort of get the picture, don't you? We've got our own little castles and we're our own little kings and queens. But now there's a new king on the block. And that means that we can't continue as before. He claims to be king of our castle. And the wise men get this. When they understand that the king is here, they leave everything and they go after him. They leave their ivory towers and their aristocratic lives to go across the desert to go find him. And bear in mind, it could have taken them months or even years. When they find Jesus, the word used for Jesus is not baby anymore, it's child, it's what you use as a toddler. So it's likely that Jesus was much older by this point. When they eventually find him, they come and they worship him, don't they? They understand that there's something special about this child. But it means if Jesus is king, then we can no longer be king. If Jesus is king, then we can't insist as carrying on as king, because that's treason, isn't it? There can't be two kings. And Herod, he gets this. It says that he's troubled. And so Jerusalem is troubled. Because if King Herod is troubled, then there's going to be trouble, isn't there, in Jerusalem. They know what Herod can do. And that's what he does. He knows there can only be one king. So he does what's natural. He tries to get rid of the other one. And that's the same for us, isn't it? We can either accept Jesus as king, or we reject him as rival. But if we're going to be dethroned of our own castle, so to speak, if we're going to accept his rule of our lives, then surely there must be something to back up his claim. Surely there must be something to show us that it's real. And that's our final point. 
Can I say something crazy? Can I say something crazy? I'll read to you again verses 5 and 6. They told him, He is to be born in Bethlehem of Judea, for so is it written in the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. The people in our passage knew this was coming. It wasn't a surprise to them. People knew from the Bible where this promised king that the wise men are speaking about would be born. When the wise men ask, they're told Bethlehem. Unsurprising given its history, we've already said it's surprising because it's small, but it's even more surprising if you think about it that they know. They know where this king is going to be born. They knew because it had been prophesied hundreds of years before. I say prophesied, really, it's stronger than predicted. It had been foretold by a man called Micah seven centuries before Jesus was born. And we have copies of that prophecy that predate Jesus. The fact that Bethlehem still existed is pretty amazing 700 years on. I mean, go back 700 years, and check this out this week. Edward II was king. And the English were fighting the Scots, and the French, and the Welsh, and each other. We had a little civil war that year as well. The specifics of the kings of England 700 years later, going back that far, would have been, you just couldn't have guessed it, could you? They didn't even know who the next king was going to be because of all that turmoil. But this couldn't just be coincidence, could it, what happens? Some people are into horoscopes, they sort of vaguely predict what will happen. Before I was a, became a Christian, in my teens I was really into the paranormal, into the X-Files and Nostradamus and all that stuff. But it's so vague that it could mean anything. I mean, who could have predicted 2020 and 2021? We didn't even know about that a few weeks before it happened, did we? So that somebody can confidently say what will happen hundreds of years in the future, that's incredible, isn't it? But what if now we actually see that what they said would happen has happened? That's not normal, is it? And it implies something pretty huge, doesn't it? Number one, it implies there's a plan for the future, that you're able to see something that's coming. History is not a series of accidents, but there's some sort of order to it, some sort of design to history. Because if it was totally up to chance, you couldn't foretell what was going to happen. But it also implies that these prophecies are not of human origin. We just can't tell the future that way, can we? We can't even guess what's going to happen tomorrow. So what about Micah, the guy who made these prophecies? Well, he didn't claim that he was the source. He claimed that he had a message from God. And you might think that sounds crazy. But then what actually he said happened. And it starts you thinking, doesn't it? Maybe you have to sit up and listen to something like that. And Micah wasn't the only one who made prophecies in the Bible. Hang on for a sec, I've got got references here if you want them afterwards. But we see in the Bible that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. We saw that this morning. We saw that the tribe of the Messiah would come from would be Judah. We see the Messiah would be heir of King David's throne. We see that there's a massacre of children that would happen at the Messiah's birthplace. We see that someone would come and prepare the way for the Messiah and be known for that. We see that he'd be rejected by his own people. We see that he would be betrayed. We also get predicted the price of money that would be paid to use the field that the person who betrayed him would die in. We saw the Messiah would be falsely accused, 
that he would be crucified with criminals, that his hands and his feet would be pierced, that soldiers would gamble for his clothes, that his bones wouldn't be broken, that he'd be buried with the rich, that he'd rise from the dead. That's a pretty good list, isn't it, of what happened to Jesus. And all of that was written before he was even born. Now, one or two of those you could dismiss, couldn't you? But this level of specificness, and the things that we're speaking about here, lots of them were humanly beyond his control, like where he was born, or how he died. And this is what began to convince me as a young man of the truth of Christianity. The only options in my mind, I'll let you into how weird my mind is, my only options in my head were there's either a god or there's a time traveller. Science tells me that time travel is impossible. But science doesn't tell me that God is impossible. And why on earth would a time traveller go back in time to leave messages about Jesus coming? That'd be a bit strange, wouldn't it? The existence of God to me seems to be the far more plausible option when we see these predictions of the future. And the more I've looked into it over the years, the more that I'm convinced that this is no ordinary child, this is no ordinary story, and that this is no ordinary book. Isn't it at least worth a look over Christmas time? 26 years ago, I bowed my knee to this new king. Not just as king, but as my saviour. One who not only rules, but rescues. A saviour king like that other king, born in Bethlehem. But unlike King David, he didn't rescue, rescue us from the giant of Goliath, but he offers to rescue us from the giants of sin, death and hell. And that is why his coming into the world was such good news for everyone. Such good news of great joy. And if we ditch that, we lose everything, don't we? We lose all that is good about Christmas. So can we ditch Christ? Can we put him out of Christmas? Well, we can, but we lose more than the sentimental side of Christmas, don't we? We lose the very turning point of history itself. The thing that turned BC into AD. So instead of ditching it this year, why not take time over the festive period to look into it? On that Boxing Day lull, when you know you normally read one of the books that you've got or watch a DVD that you've got, why not take some time to think about what we've heard this evening? About the child that was born in Bethlehem, the little town of Bethlehem, born to be king and king of everyone. And I'll tell you some ways that you can continue to think about that after we've sung our next carol, which speaks of that little town. Of Bethlehem. So let's stand and sing, O oh, little town of Bethlehem. <coughs> 